Mass. So today, our last day of silence, and the last day of looking into the fourth of the four applications of mindfulness, we return to Shantideva for the last time. And there was an earlier edition of my translation of the text, which you all had, you've had for some days. Um, but I had the English translation from the Sanskrit, which I said was about 80 years old, and it had a whole page of further material that isn't in the Tibetan. And I checked two different copies from the Tibetan um, Dengur, so the Tibetan canon, and both of them just cut, off, cut right off, and it just looked a little bit odd to me. Like It seemed like it just stopped at the end of the chapter, whereas the Sanskrit version seemed to come to a more rounded end. So then I went back and I translated that extra se section as well. So I've given you a new draft a PDF file, and it will show, show in curly brackets, okay, this part's in Sanskrit, but not in Tibetan. So then you have the whole thing, okay? So, and I think by now, after all of these eight weeks we spent together, I think this will be a little bit familiar. Uh, probably no big surprises coming. So let's just jump right in. From the Shiksha Samuchaya, his 13th chapter, we're about halfway through it. No, no, actually much, much further than that. Um, but halfway through the section on the close application of mindfulness of phenomena. And he begins with a, that is where we left off. We now recommence with a, with a citation from the Arya Lalita Vistara Sutra. Lalita Vistara Sutra. It's a Gyachir Rupe Do. And it's, um, it's really quite nice. It means the a discourse on the dance of the great expanse. Quite nice, quite poetic. So, but here's what it says. If this sounds like a dance of the great expanse, then you're really seeing it from the inside and not from the outside. Composite phenomena are impermanent and unstable. So composite, again, means just anything that arises independent upon causes and conditions. Composite phenomena are impermanent and unstable. They are subject to, to destruction, like an unbaked pot. They're like a borrowed article. Like a sandcastle, they, they do not last long. These composite phenomena are destructible, like plaster during the rainy season. They're like sand on a riverbank. They're fragile, for they depend on contributing conditions. Composite phenomena are like the diminishing flame of a lamp, for their nature is to quickly rise and pass away. Like the wind, they do not remain. Like a bubble, they are fragile and devoid of an essence. Composite phenomena are, are unmoving and empty. So the first part, I'll just interject, I, 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 I'm, I have to apologize a little bit for breaking into the flow of that. All of that, that first part of this citation, emphasizing the relative nature of these phenomena, that they are momentarily arising, all destruction and so forth. But now as you come to the end of this paragraph, then there's suddenly a shift. After saying they arise, and they arise, they pass away, they're fleeting, and so forth. And then there's a shift, and it says composite phenomena are unmoving. Wait a minute, wait a minute. They're unmoving and empty. Unmoving and empty. So that's, and it's miyoa, which means just that. It, that. They don't budge, they don't waver, they don't flicker, they don't move. That's miyoa. And so it's a very literal, I tend to be a literal translator. So composite phenomena are unmoving and empty. 
when investigated, they're seen to be like a mound of plantain trees. Plantain trees are, are notoriously known for being hollow inside. They look really firm on the outside, but they have no, no inner. They're just empty. Like an optical illusion, they delude the mind. And they're like an empty fist used to coax a child. Like, I've got candy. And they make it, I've got candy. And now I don't. So, I think it's getting definitely close to time for a final examination. And I'm the teacher. <laughs> Composite phenomena are unmoving and empty. If I give you this great big hint, that the first part is all about their relative nature. When he says empty, well, we know that. We have a pretty good sense, because this is coming after the first three applications of mindfulness. Unmoving. Unmoving. What sense do you make of that? Empty, empty of inherent nature. Where is this unmoving coming from? What's your sense? Tanya, what's your sense? What, when he says that composite phenomena are unmoving, what do, you, what, what, what do you imagine he means by that? It's a concept. I think you're exactly right. I think you're exactly right. It's a concept. She uses very, she's a Finn. She uses very few words. <laughs> and if I can't figure it out, that's my problem. <laughs> but I think I did figure it out. And that as soon as we, that is, how do we know about any, how do we ever identify any composite phenomena? Well, we have to distinguish, distinguish this from that. Right? As soon as we distinguish this, we've locked it in, we've got a grid. There's Patrice, there's Mike, there's Danny, there's Graham. And so, boom. And now I can different, and now, okay, there's one composite phenomena, one, two, three, four. Boom. The conceptual designation comes out, and that conceptual designation does not, does not budge. The conceptual designation is static. It's static. You know Patrice. You know Patrice. I've known her off and on for almost 40 years. Lost sight a little bit, nevertheless. But yeah, I remember you. You're that young gal, about 19 years old, very slender. She's right over there. The concept is static. It's unmoving. But then when you look for the referent of the label, the label, Patrice, 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 how many ways are there that you've heard that pronounced? It's pretty much the same name and the same concept, right? Static. But then when you look for the referent of the name, lo and behold, not the body, not the mind, not anywhere else, empty. So unmoving and empty. That's my, guess, my, that's my best sense, too. Good. She's been meditating for a while, by the way. It shows. So, like an, so, continue on. And like an optical illusion, you know what that is. And that is they appear to be really there from their own side. Just like a magical illusion, an optical illusion. They delude the mind. They trick us. And they're like an empty fist. Okay, Empty fist. So all changes in composite phenomena are brought about by causing additions, with one acting as the cause for another. I'm going to maybe pause again. Yep, I am going to. That strong emphasis, it's so such an enormously central point in Buddhist worldview, Buddhist teachings, of, the, of all of these composite phenomena, ourselves, our loved ones, our possessions, our relationships, everything that we cherish, pretty much, hedonically, everything that people value, hold on to, cherish, all here is unstable, impermanent, subject to destruction, destructible, like sand on a riverbank, 
diminishing, fading away, passing away, fragile, devoid of essence. (sighs) So that whole emphasis. Why are they emphasizing this? If one is viewing reality from a hedonic perspective, if that's your view, that happiness is the pursuit of hedonic well-being and the avoidance of hedonic misery and unhappiness, then this is just like getting smacked in the head with a two-by-four. I mean, it just takes all the fun out. You know, I, mean, I found, finally found my dream partner. I finally found a dream car, the ultimate driving machine, the neighborhood I always wanted to move in. Finally, I'd be able to get in, et cetera, et cetera. And it's just going, and it's just cutting it off at the knees. All that stuff, all that all that. I think the point here is that this is actually reality. He's not being pessimistic. He's not being optimistic. This is just the way it is. Just the way it is. And if one is in the midst of reality, purely in the pursuit of hedonic well-being, the avoidance of hedonic pain, discomfort, suffering, if one gets a glimmering of this, if one gets some sense, maybe a loved one dies, or you lose your job, or one of your children is terribly ill, or just anything happens, or there's economic distress in your country or on the planet, there's environmental problems, so forth, Uh, there's a lot of corruption in politics, uh, uh, corruption in politics, corruption in medicine, corruption in education, in the medical system, did I say that already? Uh, In the pharmaceutical industry, so many things. And one's own health being so fragile. And one looks around, and one can just, just fall into just a nosedive of depression, recognizing how difficult it is to find even a little teaspoon of hedonic pleasure in such a world. Really difficult. So depression is kind of like would be a very realistic response to attending closely to this reality from a hedonic perspective. And that is, why bother? Why bother? Why bother at all? And when one looks to the future, so there's we have one, depression. Chronic, clinical, abiding depression. And then when you look to the future, how do things look tomorrow and next year? and so forth. Anxiety. General anxiety disorder would be a very realistic response. Because how confident can can you be, unless you're just flat out delusional, that everything's going to turn out well? Just believe me. Your kids are all going to turn out swell. You're going to have better and better health for the rest of your life, and you're going to die of happiness. And all your relationships are going to turn out really well, and the economy really is going to turn around. And human beings are going to be so intelligent and far-sighted that we will solve the, econ- the environmental problems we've created. And things have gotten so bad in the medical industry and the pharmaceutical industry, they're going to just start reciting Vajrasattva forever, you know, <laughs> to purify all that they've done. And we're going to get it all together, and this is going to turn out really well. Uh, well, one may not believe that, in which case the alternative is just to fall into general anxiety disorder, that maybe that won't happen. So for the future, general anxiety disorder. For the present, depression. And then when you look to the past, who among us hasn't been traumatized in some way? So when we, when we go down memory lane, we can, and we can slip onto the little shoot of post-traumatic stress disorder. And in the midst of this, this is just bound to give rise to an awful lot of rumination, of anxiety and mulling over and about the past and all the rotten things that have happened and the things that will likely happen in the future that are rotten or will be rotten, and then depressive and depressing rumination about things that are happening in the present that are rotten, 
that when you're caught up in rumination, this gives rise to a tension hyperactivity disorder. But it's so exhausting that when you're finished with that, you fall into, de- uh, uh, into oh, a, uh, attention deficit disorder. Because it's just so you're so fatigued by all the rumination. And so you zone out at the end of the day watching television. And that stirs up, stirs up more rumination. So when you try to fall asleep, you can't. And so to round it off, to make sure you have a really rich life, you've got depression for the present, anxiety for the future, post-traumatic stress disorder pertaining to the past, overall attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, and when you try to finally call it quits at the end of the day, then you have insomnia. (laughs) And uh, did I miss out on anything? And again, as long as we're operating completely from a hedonic perspective, you can be absolutely certain that there is a drug for all occasions. They've got to have drugs for post-traumatic stress disorder. And then for all of the others as well. And so we have one, com- one, we have one professional composer here, and I'm actually a non-professional composer of music. Yeah, uh, I, I haven't made a, a living out of it. But I actually composed a song this afternoon. <laughs> and I'd like to share it with you. And then you can judge for yourself whether you think I might be able to actually make a living as a songwriter, and I'll sing it for you. And so you can see whether I can make my living as a songwriter or actually a performer. So you ready for my performance? Okay. And you can sing, a, but well, I'll sing it once, but I think you'll get, you'll get it quite quickly. You ready? Drug, drug, drug your brain Blindly down the drain Drearily, 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 drearily Spend your life in vain That could be pretty catchy, don't you think? <laughs> For some big pharmaceutical industry, our, our little jingle is. <laughs> you know? So why is Shantideva doing this to us? And why does the Buddhist tradition as a whole? To wake us up. To wake us up. If there were no alternative, if there were no other source of well-being, if there were no, if there were, if there were no way to flourish in the midst of the kind of world we have now, and of course, there have been many, many bad times. It was, I think it was the 14th century with the bubonic plague. One can say that was a bad time. With one third of, and it, it swept all, all the way across Asia to Europe, wiped out one third of the population. And there have been depressions, there have been wars, there's been so many types of adversity on all over the continent. That here is the great challenge of Buddhism. How can we flourish in the midst of that? You know? And that's what Dharma is for. So to really focus clearly in on the reality of impermanence, the Buddha said, of all of the footprints of wild creatures, the biggest one is that of an elephant. And of all of the meditations that makes an imprint upon your mind, that really has an impact on the mind, meditation on impermanence. Impermanence. It really does it. But it does it if and only if. This is my absolutely strong conviction if and only if you see an alternative to the pursuit of hedonic well-being. If, if it, we know that the, the world can be depressing, we know all of that, we don't want to be reminded, that's why the two greatest drugs that people are taking to try to anesthetize, anesthetize the mind from the realities of, of the reality of impermanence and then the symptoms of depression and anxiety are work and entertainment. Those are the biggest drugs. 
stay busy all day until you're almost wiped out, watch television, and then go comatose so you can work all day, wipe yourself out, get a bit of entertainment, and after all, you do have, in Europe, I think five weeks of vacation. Isn't it five weeks of vacation? Six, wow! <laughs> they really reward you for beating your brains out. In America, I think only two, isn't it? Two. So it's merciless. Really merciless. And so it's, it's work and entertainment, work and entertainment. That's it. And so Buddha Dhamma is offering an alternative to numbing ourselves into insensibility. And that is by attending more closely to reality rather than withdrawing from reality. That's why you can see, I just don't go for it, that we're all returning to the real world on Thursday. So there we are. But that's a little commentary on that. But the point there is that we know about the, you know, this is not really new. Nobody has said, oh, why didn't you tell me that relationships break, that people die, that people, and so forth. We know it, but we don't want to think about it. We do not want to attend to it because it's depressing, right? And so here he is. He says, yes, do attend to it. But to my mind, it's this very strong conviction, once again, since we know about the reality of suffering and how depressing and anxiety-driven and so forth that can be, to my mind, it's got to be balanced with knowing. To balance that out with simply belief, well, don't worry, you're going to heaven afterwards. Just, you know, believe in the right things. And we'll tell you exactly what those are. Believe in those, and then it'll be swell. Don't worry, it'll be after you're dead. You know, whether it's Christian, whether it's Buddhist, Hindu, or whatever. Uh, that, to my mind, just, there's, there's not a symmetry there. One we know, and the other one's just blind faith. And likewise, Lamrim can be presented in that way. So here it is, and so we know about reality of suffering, we know about the reality of impermanence, and then, but then if the other, just all belief, okay, believing in the six realms of existence, believing in pure lands, believing in nirvana, believing in that other people have achieved samadhi, people that other people have achieved vipassana, other people have achieved stage of generation completion, If it's all knowledge on one side and belief on the other, that's, that doesn't quite seem to be suitable. So I think there's got to be knowledge on both sides. Must be knowledge on both sides. And that's what we've been exploring for these last eight weeks. Not an indoctrination into a whole worldview that will somehow, if you believe, that'll make you happy, but practices to go deeper into reality, into the nature of your mind, of awareness, into the four applications of mindfulness to scrutinize, examine impermanence and so on, and then finding in the midst of all of that a sense of inner peace, of calm, a well-being in the body, well-being in the mind emerges from within. And that's staring impermanence right in the face and saying, I see you, I see you, and I can flourish despite you. So, powerful medicine. Powerful medicine. But these sa that same paragraph could lead others into simply uh, uh, chronic depression and anxiety and everything else. So we continue. From the same sutra, all changes in composite phenomena are brought about by causes and conditions, with one acting as the cause for another, which arises independent upon it. But childish people do not realize this. For example, a grass rope is made, made by twisting munja grass, and well buckets are turned by a wheel. But neither of those is brought about by the individual elements. So no one individual strand of grass makes a rope. No one... what ratchet on the, on the wheel for the well buckets, like in a, in, a, in, a, in a water wheel. No one of them does the job. Likewise, all the links of becoming are brought about independence upon other links. This is referring to the 12 links of dependent origination, but they are not brought about individually. No one of them will do the whole job. 
nor is their past or future ever perceived. So here, this whole theme here is pratitisamapada, all composite phenomena brought about by, by, by causal conditions, this mutual interdependence. But then when you look for the individual components and try to isolate them, identify them, pull them out, and look at them na- nakedly, devoid of context, by their own inherent nature, not to be found. So there it is. That's the essence of the teachings of dependent origination and emptiness, actually referring to the same reality. I, I just find it awesomely brilliant. This is Nagarjuna, classic Nagarjuna. But here it is from a sutra. Just as there is a sprout, if there is a seed, but the sprout is not the seed, nor is it other than the seed, nor is it both, so its nature is neither permanent nor annihilated. That is, the sprout wasn't always there, nor is it really annihilated, nor nor is is the, uh, the sprout really annihilated, nor is the seed really annihilated, passing into non-existence as a real entity when the sprout arises. So similarly, ignorance is the cause of composite phenomena, but but, but composite phenomena are not really existent. Ignorance and composite phenomena are empty of inherent nature, and they do not waver. It comes back to that same point with Tanya. The impression of a seal, like an old-fashioned seal, like a wax seal, the impression of a seal appears from the seal. You place it down, there's the impression. But no transference of that cause is ever observed. The impression is not in the seal, nor is it anywhere else. So composite phenomena are neither permanent nor annihilated. They're not always really there, and nor are, do they ever really, they never really are there in the first place, nor are they ever passing into non-existence. Visual consciousness arises in dependence upon the eye and form. But the eye does not depend on form, nor is form transferred from the eye. These are by nature identityless and impure, but they are imagined as having identities that have an inherent nature and as being pure. Even though that imputation is erroneous and unreal, visual consciousness arises from it. The wise see that consciousness ceases and emerges, arising and passing. The yogin sees that it does not go anywhere, nor come from anywhere, like an empty illusion. So there he goes right to the core, the emptiness of consciousness itself, and not only all the objects of consciousness. For example, fire arises independence upon the three factors of a fire drill stick, one of those you go like this, you rub between your hands, the basis for that drill, where you put the fire, the fire stick into, and the manual effort of turning it, but once it has arisen, it does not last long. Then when the wise examine this, looking in all directions to see where it comes from, that flame, and where it goes, they find that its coming and going are unobservable. The wise say that the contributing conditions of the psychophysical aggregates and sense bases are ignorance and craving, and from their assemblage there is a sentient being. But ultimately, that is unobservable. So that's the end of the chapter in Tibetan, but then the Sanskrit continues from the same sutra. Independence upon the lips, throat, and palate, from the movement of the tongue emerges the sounds of letters, but they're not in the throat or the palate, and the letters are unobservable in any of them. The speech that depends upon their combination emerges by the power of the intelligence of the mind, and the mind and speech are invisible and formless. But the mind and speech are invisible and formless. They are not observed either inside or outside. 
When the wise examine the arising and passing of the sounds of speech, the voice, sounds, and melodies, they see that all speech is like an echo, momentary and without an essence. For example, when the threefold combination of hand movements in conjunction with the wood and strings, pleasant sounds arise from such instruments as a lute and flute. Then when the wise look in all the principal and cardinal, no, a principal and, what, what are the other ones called? I, I missed that. Principal, cardinal and subcardinal, what do they call it? Intermediate. Intermediate, that's good, thank you. Cardinal and, there's a typo there, I'm glad I caught it now. Cardinal and, cardinal and, in, and intermediate, I'm going to read it again, I suppose. Thank you. Then when the wise look in all the cardinal and intermediate directions to find where the sound arises from and where it goes, they find that its coming and going are unobservable. Thus all the transformations of composite phenomena arise from causes and contributing conditions. But the yogin who perceives what is real sees that composite phenomena are empty and unmoving. The psychophysical aggregates, sense bases, and elements are empty inside and empty outside. They're all devoid of an identity and without location. The characteristic of phenomena is the essential nature of space. So once again, two sides of the same reality that is just viewed from different perspectives. On the one hand, the utter uncertainty, the utter flux nature of all composite phenomena, the uncertainty, the ever-changing nature of everything around us from one perspective, and it's very simply a hedonic perspective. It's just depressing. It's demoralizing, maybe suicidally you know, mind-numbing. And from the side of eudaimonia, it's just the way reality is. One accepts it with quiescence. And of course, it's only because, because composite phenomena are impermanent that we have any chance of ever gaining release from suffering and the causes of suffering, following the path to enlightenment and achieving awakening. If, if phenomena were not impermanent, that wouldn't be possible. And likewise, coming back to the point that Elizabeth made earlier in the written question, emptiness. I know a, a num some translators, not many, but some translators just don't like the word, even though it's, the, the, it's just the literal translation of the word. It just means, sh uh, shunya means empty. Thomba means empty. That's just all it means. It just means empty. But again, if one hears the word or hears this description without the understanding, one would think, oh man, it's not only is all, all phenomena impermanent, but they're empty too. I thought life was empty, and now what? that's what the Buddhists say too. It must be true. Life totally sucks, because it's completely empty. Okay? Which means you've entirely missed the point. Entirely missed the point. Empty of inherent nature. Empty of inherent nature, not intrinsically empty of meaning. Right? I mean, Shantideva is saying elsewhere in the text, in, the, in his other text, this one, take the essence, find the essence, take the essence of a meaningful life. But then we, we, you, some of you will recall the story of the monk from Natang, a quite rather famous story from Tsongkhapa's life. The monk from Natang, Tsongkhapa giving teachings on emptiness. And large congregation of monks, and there was one monk there from the district of Natang, one region of Tibet. Tsongkhapa's teaching with it from his profound realization, his brilliant intellect, great, enormously eloquent and articulate, and so as he's teaching, I mean, some people are being drawn right into the realization of emptiness as he's speaking. It's happened many, many times in Buddhist history. So this monk from Natang was listening very intently, just drinking it in. And then suddenly, he just freaked. 
I don't. I, I, I think probably something like, like that. You know, just his face going into like, and and he grabbed his collar. He grabbed his collar. Remember? And then Songaba, being clairvoyant, he picked him out of the crowd, and he said, Ah, this monk from Natang, he's just established conventional reality with respect to his collar. So the point there is that this monk wasn't really ready to have some powerful insight into emptiness because still too much clinging, too much grasping, self-centeredness, grasping, attachment, and so forth. And why, if you are coming at it from that, then I think it was Geshe Ngamataige told me if you, if you approach the teachings on emptiness as an unripe or unsuitable vessel, that if you get some insight into the reality of emptiness, you will feel shattered as if you've just lost your most precious possession. That which you thought was really, really there. Empty. You've lost it. right? So not exactly good news. Whereas another person who's well-prepared, well-prepared for developing renunciation, the four immeasurables, bodhicitta, and so forth, who's well-prepared, cultivating the first five of the perfections. Such a person having the same insight, if one can imagine an insight transplant, take that person's insight and translate it over into this person's mind stream, and that person, upon gaining some real insight into emptiness, feels that he has found the most precious treasure. So one feels he's lost the most, the other one feels he's found the most. So how are the teachings on emptiness not depress- depressing, demoralizing, shattering, nihilistic? It's a very simple reason for it. If all of us here in this room and everybody outside, listening by podcast, everybody on the planet, if we all, each of us here, each of us anywhere, if we actually did exist as autonomous, self-existent ego entities, really there, from their own side, the immediate and unavoidable implication is radical, radical alienation. This means I am totally separate, absolutely separate from everybody else. And then it doesn't stop there. In other words, there's no real connection. Because I'm absolutely, I'm, I'm imprisoned here inside my body and mind. You know, the controller, the ego, the agent, me. And my hand always does that. All of it. So, hello, you did it again. I see you. you know, it always goes into the fist of this contraction within. And if that's who I really am, then, then Daniel's well-being is really none of my concern. I'm sorry, but that's just the way it is. Because he's over there with his clenched fist. He's trapped within his body-mind as an absolutely separate individual, ego person. So if I feel like it, I might say, you know, good luck, Daniel. But how can I really care? Because he's just absolutely unrelated to me. There's no connection. You may as well be from another galaxy, if that's how we are. So the reification, this reification of self, self and others, which means the reification of the separation from self and others, is absolute, which means it absolutely guts any true sense of empathy or compassion or loving kindness. So what does it mean then? So that's not how I feel about Daniel. It would be, I don't know, it would be just incredibly sad to view reality from that perspective. And that is the perspective I think some people approximate. People said, you know, I'm out for myself. I'm out for myself. I'm one of the stronger ones. The strong, the strong survive. The weak people, tough luck on you. So there we are. 
So what, but then where's the human touch? Where's the warmth? Where's the, where's the moisture of the teachings on emptiness? Because it's not nihilism. It's not that I don't exist at all. That never comes up at all, if one properly understands the teachings. It never comes up at all that we simply don't exist at all. But since I do not exist as an, an inherently separate entity, ego, self, person, but I'm constantly arising and constantly arising in relationship to those around me, arising as a grandfather, as a teacher, as a spouse, as a son, as a friend, as a customer, and so forth, always arising, arising, and always in interrelationship with no nuclear, no separate selves anywhere, but always arising in mutual interdependence. It's in that context of profound and essential interdependence that Shantideva in his eighth chapter, the immediate preceding chapter to this one, raises that question, and I'm sure I cited it earlier. Why should I, why should I be concerned for the suffering of others? He, he asks himself this, because it creates more suffering for me to take seriously, to be concerned about other people's suffering. That's more suffering for me. So why should I do that? He's asking himself. And the answer comes in in the very next one. Because it's suffering, and suffering has no owner. And he said, oh. Oh. And that is, we're all in this together. And so compassion, really, empathy, loving kindness, compassion, is the only realistic way to attend to others. And of course, to ourselves. So that's it. Teachings and emptiness actually are the, I'm going to say it really fancy, epistemic foundation for compassion, loving kindness, and bodhicitta. And the opposite is the foundation for nihilism, aloofness, indifference, and sociopathic self-centeredness. So we then we continue. And now with a final quote, it's quite short, from the Lokanatta Vyakarana. So we'll just go into it. Conditions are empty and nameless. Now he's going right for the emptiness teaching. Conditions, phenomena at large, are empty and nameless. They don't have the name already built in. They're not already self-identifying. What can be said of a name? Emptiness. Nowhere are devas, nagas, or rakshasas to be found. Men or no men, all are known as that. No type of sentient being is to be found as an inherently existent entity, self, person. Names are imputed but they are empty, for in names there is no name. That is, even the names are not intrinsically names. Jochen, we know that's a, any, any German speaker knows that's a name. I learned it recently. I didn't know that was a name. Uh, it's not one of the most common ones, I think. But now I know, and it's a name. But now what makes Jochen a name, whereas Frubash, as far as I know, Frubash Beck, don't call your kids that. What makes Jochen a name and Frubash not? And maybe Frubash, well, maybe I'm just starting a new, you know, new trend here. Maybe there'll be a whole plethora of children called Frubash in the near future. But until that happens, I'll assume it's not a name. It's just noise. Right? So what makes Jochen a name, referring to a person rather than a fruit or a vegetable, whereas Frubash, it's just noise. Because we decide so. So even names are not, have no inherent existence, let alone the referent of the name. For in, in names there is no name. Nameless are all conditions, but illuminated by names. Where's Jochen? Where's Jochen? Oh, he's, he's right over there. And then that illuminates by demarcating Jochen from not Jochen. Then we have a clear, oh, but you, you mean that person right there who has a body, who has a mind, who's married to Monica, and so forth and so on? Oh, yeah, that's the one I'm talking about. 
Yeah, that one. And then suddenly, oh, that, oh you mean Jochen. And so now suddenly it's illuminated. Right? So on the one hand, names, language illuminates. On the other hand, as soon as we reify names and their reference, they obscure. So nameless are all conditions, but illuminated by name. For the nature of a name is neither seen nor heard. It neither arises nor passes away. Of what do you ask the name? Name is a matter of convention. Declarations made with labels. This one is Rat Ratnachitra, by name, a person's name. That other man is Ratnottama. This concludes chapter 13, the close applications of mindfulness from a compendium of practices. And that concludes the discussion of the, four, of the ap close applications of mindfulness by Shantideva. I've got a lot of sutras in there. Oh, Lasso, let's jump right in. Settle your body, speech, and mind in the natural state. Your eyes be at least a little bit open. Resting your awareness evenly in the space in front of you without focusing on any object, without meditating on anything. 
simply rest your awareness in the present moment. Sustaining that flow of mindful presence, of mindful presence without distraction and without grasping. with nothing else occupying your attention or catching your attention, it may more and more clearly dawn upon you that you are aware and you know it. This miracle of consciousness is yours. And I say miracle because we know not from what it stems stems from a dimension of reality we have not yet fully comprehended. Here's the first miracle, that we are conscious at all. Rest in the knowing of being conscious. In this way, clearly ascertain the relative nature of awareness, of consciousness, with its salient and distinctive characteristics. It is knowing, cognizant. It's luminous, bright, clear, transparent, making manifest all manner of appearance, subjective and objective. Clearly ascertain this reality that is so much at your core, of your very existence. 
being aware. Here is the label used interchangeably, consciousness, awareness. Either one will do. Now as you probe into the very nature of awareness, identify the reference of that word. What is it that has the qualities of luminosity and cognizance? That takes on so many other transitory or adventitious characteristics of being dull or sharp, agitated or calm, still or in motion, and many, many other qualities. What is that awareness itself? What are its boundaries? Luminosity and cognizance are two different qualities, quite distinct from each other. In no way are they identical. So what is the very nature of this awareness that has these two qualities?
if you find that awareness is unfindable and subjected to this type of scrutiny, rest in that knowing of its unobservability, unfindability. emptiness. Turn your attention outwards to appearances. Since mental objects can be mentally perceived within what is the visual domain, you can imagine seeing things, imagine hearing things. Consider that the relative Dhammadhatu is the space of awareness and all appearances arise in this more generic, all-encompassing space of awareness. As appearances and objects come to mind, examine their nature. Probe deeply to see whether anything upon analysis can be found to exist from its own side, by its own intrinsic nature.
all composite phenomena, all appearances, are said to be empty and unmoving. They never go from here to there. They appear and yet they are empty, mere configurations of empty space. with an awareness that is relaxed, still and clear. I tend to the emptiness and luminosity of all appearance, of all objects of the light.
Well, that's all. On a very practical note, when, you go in, when we venture into these very deep issues, reality of suffering, nature of emptiness, and so forth, I know this had an enormous impact on me, when I, especially when I first went out to, to India to live with Tibetans there, and ever since then. And that is, if you can identify individuals who just have drenched their minds in such realities, in the cultivation of bodhicitta, realization of emptiness, Vajrayana, and so forth, with really authentic practice. And then see how they turn out. See how they turn out. So some of us have had the great fortune. I mean, his holiness is so public that many people can have some access to him. He's, you know, he wakes up every morning, I mean, pretty much regularly, 3.30, and he's just devoting himself to these practices for the last 60 years or so. So if you're wondering, how does that turn out? There's one good, good example, right? And there, there are many others as well. So if you meditate extensively on emptiness, do you turn out to be withered, dried up, barren, aloof, indifferent, cold, and sad? Not my experience. So that's actually a really crucial element here. And that is actually be able to encounter people who, to a significant extent, are really embodying you know, what's it like if you meditate in that way. And just not just meditation, but drenched, immerse yourself, giving up attachment to this life, letting your mind become done. And I think that's my own sense. That's what really keeps Dharma alive. It's not study. It's not doing rituals. It's not doing building stupas or building temples and Courses, courses, courses. All of this has their place. I'm not disparaging any of them. But all of those can be components of a, of a Dharma museum where do- dead Dharma goes to die. Right? But what keeps it alive? All of those having its place. I mean, none of those were insignificant. But what keeps it alive is it be actually from generation to generation that you really can encounter people who've had such experience. That's that. Hola, so, so we are in our last afternoon of silence. And again, from, from the next, for the next three days, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, I'll still be in retreat, pretty much, mostly, about as much as I was yesterday or today. Uh, so what I'm inviting is that the times of meals are just talk as much as you wish. I, mean, I would encourage you to speak. Uh, for these final three days, um, to get to know each other a bit more they, verbally in that way, uh, and also, some of you may very well wish to be in touch after the retreat's over. So now's be a good time to be exchanging emails and just learning more and more, more about each other. As we know, there are very few places that have a very high density of Dharma practitioners, let alone those who are really, really committed to finding the path and following the path. You know? So that's, that's for in-between sessions. Uh, that is, in-between sessions. I'm saying the sessions are the meals. You know, three, three, sessions, a d- three, three sessions a day. Uh, in-between the meals... Um, at your discretion at any time, if you'd like to go out walking with someone and talking at any time, that's fine. Uh, but some of us would really like to kind of squeeze this retreat to the last drop. And so, to, and so what I would encourage you is this, this center here, even for the last three days, if you want to talk, at least keep it really quiet. So some people who are just going to meditate right to the end, they still have that option. Okay? Good. So as we're gradually now coming to an end, uh, I see two rather long questions here, but I have no time for live questions. This morning, questions pertaining to practice, either right now or the last eight weeks, or practice as it's unfolding in the future. Anything coming up? Everything clear? Okay, what's up with you, Joe? A microphone anywhere around? We had one this morning. Ah, there yeah, we go. Thank you. 
Oh, yeah. Uh, it's regarding the fourth time, the timeless awareness. Yeah. This is going to be about practical? Yeah, because I, I don't know at, what, at some point if I'm distracted. Or if you are I'm distracted. You're distracted. You're distracted, yes. yes. Or is experiencing this. Is possible to experience it in shamatha or only no. when you put no. uh, the uni unity of Jin, Jeshe, and Rikpa? Yeah. It's uh, timelessness. The term has different meanings, obviously. When you are going deeper, deeper into shamatha, with clarity. Number one, timelessness is also deep sleep. That is, if you're, you know, rump, rump, ever heard of Rumpelstiltskin? I think he went to sleep for 100 years. Uh, if, you're, if you're deep asleep, do you have any real sense of passage of time? If, you, if you've been deep asleep, do you have any idea really how long you are deep asleep when you first wake up? And my sense is generally not, because the mind is so non-conceptual at that time that the experience sense of passage of time just doesn't happen. So you really don't know. So that's one kind of type timelessness, but it's a timelessness because you've gone unconscious. And the flow of knowing has, has been suspended, and so knowing has all gone implicit, right? Your substrate consciousness has slipped into the substrate. So that's one kind of timelessness. But you can get that with, um, by having major brain damage, you know, like that, brain death, uh, being comatose, anesthetized, and so forth and so on. So not something we need to strive for, right? And then, on a happy, oh, that's, yeah, so on an, and then in another way, through the cultivation of shamatha, as uh, along that ninefold trajectory at the nine stages of shamatha, culminating in shamatha, of course, the awareness getting brighter and brighter and brighter while conceptualization is diminishing, diminishing, diminishing. So that when you actually achieve shamatha, but also in many phases prior to that point, when the mind goes really very non-conceptual, and it's clear, some of you have already commented on this, just you'll, you'll, you look at the watch and say, oh, wow, I had no idea 45 minutes has gone by, or an hour has gone by. Oh, it felt like only 15 minutes, 20 minutes. Why? Not because you're spaced out, the mind may be very clear, maintaining a flow of knowing, but that knowing is always fresh. Moment, 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 it's always fresh. And therefore, because you're not dragging conceptualization through it, you're not dragging a sense of the passage of time. How long has this been? How much longer do I have to meditate before the bell goes off? Right? So just going into a state of clarity and non-conceptuality is bound to attenuate, diminish the sense of passage of time. So relatively timeless. Achieve shamatha. Okay, I've got to tell, tell you a story. It's a nice story. True story. Told me by Genlam Rimba. Some of you have heard it, I'm sure, because you listen to podcasts now. Um, this is from Genlam Rimba, and the story, I think, is not very old. It's not centuries and centuries old, maybe a matter of decades old, about one yogi from eastern Tibet who was accomplished yogi at the chief shamatha, and he's traveling, oh, like, probably on foot, maybe, but who knows, yak or foot. But they're doing this long journey from eastern to Tibet, like come all the way to central Tibet to meet one of the great lamas there in Lhasa. And so they're traveling, but they only make about 10 miles a day, so it's, it's many, many, many days, two or three months of traveling like that. And so the, the yogi had his attendant, and the attendant would just look after his basic, basic physical needs. Uh, you know, build, build a campfire in the, in, in, the, in the evening and cook up his tea and make him breakfast, and then they'd pack up the, maybe they had a pack animal, who knows, and then they'd head out on the next leg of the journey. But every night after the yogi had had his tea, maybe a bit of to eat, whatever, then he would just go right into samadhi, right through the night. Just boom, he just, just 100% straight samadhi, no sleeping. Uh, but he, he told his attendant, uh, in the morning when you prepared the, prepared the tea and you know, breakfast, then just call out, tea's on, remember the story? Tea's on, and, and then we'll have tea together and then head out on the next leg of the journey. That is how he cued himself. 
not to wind in the trees or, or birds or coyote, or they didn't have coyotes, wolves, whatever, not, not sounds of nature, not any other sounds, maybe sounds of making tea. He wouldn't hear any of that. He'd be totally out of it. But he'd cue himself, like a mother cues herself in deep sleep prior to falling asleep, to, hear, to recognizing and awakening when she hears the sound of her baby crying. He cued himself, that's the sound I'll hear. And as soon as the, the, the attendant called, called to the yogi, tea's on, he'd come right out of samadhi, have the tea, and then they'd have the next day. So they're getting close to Plaza, maybe three or four days outside of Plaza. So they're really right towards the end of the long journey. And the attendant is really looking forward to getting to the big city. The big city for Javel, I think, had 45,000 back then, 45,000 population. Woohoo! So, but you know, I can have some fun, maybe drink a little bit of chung and have some fun, maybe whatever, but you know, some fun. Whereas this is such a drag for him. The yogi is going into Yudhamuni every, every night, and he's a great yogi, and the attendant's just, you know, having a long hike. And so he, he can almost smell it, you know, like the, like the horse smells the barn. He can almost smell Hazard. It's only a few days away, and he knows he'll get there so much faster if he can just leave this old guy behind. And so he wakes up, he gets up in the morning, he looks at the teapot, and he said, oh, fiddlesticks. In Tibetan, he said, fiddlesticks. <laughs> and he said, let him get his own tea. I, want, I, I, can't, I can't handle this anymore. I just want to go up to Laos and have some fun. So he takes off. He takes off. Leaves the yogi there. Leaves the yogi behind. I mean, you know, what, what harm can it do? He'll come out of meditation, say, oh, shucks, I have to make, make my own tea. So he'll get over it, you know? So the attendant heads off to Laos. He gets there much faster, of course. And uh, he's, he's devout. And so he also seeks a little darshan, a little meeting with the, with, with the great lama that the yogi was also to meet. So he seeks out the lama just to make a kata. You know, well, here I am. I made it. Here's my kata. Bed listening. Thank you. Off the chong. You know. And so he comes to the lama, and, and the lama says, where's the yogi? The lama's clairvoyant. He says, where's the yogi? And the attendant says, oh, um, he's coming soon. He, he, he's coming soon. He, he, he's, he's right behind me. And the lama says, no, he's not. Go back and get him. <laughs> so the poor attendant Trapes his back, and there the yogi still sitting in meditation. And then he, he puts on it, like, okay, I better make some tea. <laughs> so he makes the tea, and then he calls out, Tea's on. The yogi comes out of meditation, has his tea, and then they do the r- rest of the trip. So, you know, whether it's overnight or whether it's four days, if you're in deep in samadhi, the sense of passage of time not there. Now, who knows whether the yogi was simply had the, the, the lowest denominator since we can assume that the yogi was not in a state of stupor, you know, so we can set that one aside. At the very least, a shamatha, but shamatha would be sufficient. He could have been in the union of shamatha vipassana. That would put him into a timeless space. He could have been in a realization of rikpa, and that would put him into a timeless space. So all of those, all of those. Okay? But when we speak of the fourth time, the fourth time, that's really, that's the time of rikpa. It's, a time, it's not even the time of the direct non-conceptual realization of emptiness. It's rikpa, because rikpa is beyond time, and it's beyond space. So if you slip into the fourth time, write me a postscript. <laughs> All righty. Thank you. You are welcome. Here's from our beloved and indefatigable, wonderful handwriting of, shucks, it's Steph. <laughs> All right, here's Steph. Uh, in yesterday's emptiness of phenomena meditation, I was able to apply it to an unpleasant feeling, very good, which subsequently dissolved upon analysis. Okay, cool, very good. However, I keep getting stuck with physical phenomena, 
Can you give an explanation or demonstrate how you would apply emptiness analysis to the following, which was my subject yesterday, or my object yesterday? If I point to, and that is, which say not labeling, if I point to one of the white squares on the roof, oh yeah, I've never looked up there. One of the white squares on the roof. Uh, I haven't named it. Oh, I think you have. I think it's called white square of the roof. <laughs> what do you want to call it, Fred? <laughs> Mary? <laughs> I think white square on the roof is actually a label. That's how you're able to distinguish that from everything that it's not it. But, uh, okay, but I won't quibble here. I haven't named it. Yuck, yuck, yuck. Uh, and wouldn't even know what to call it. Oh, how about white squares on the roof? <laughs> I think I can come up with a label. I'm pretty creative here. <laughs> or what it's made out of, a white firm stuff. Um, I'm teasing you, Steph, in case you haven't figured that out. So I'm pointing to that particular thing, which I haven't conceptually designated. I really have to disagree. I think you have exactly conceptually designated as one of the white squares on the roof. That's exactly how you've conceptually designated, and that's how you've labeled it, and you know perfectly well that stuff is made out of. It's firm, and it would, probably wouldn't taste good. So how is that empty? I haven't conceptually... I haven't conceptually designated. Okay, but, but this is a perfectly good question because it seems like just a given. I'm just going like that. But the point here is that conceptual designation is not as gross as saying that is a white tile made out of a particular substance that goes for 300 baht per square meter. Simply identifying it as a white square on the roof is a conceptual designation. And then how is that not empty? There are two approaches, and actually, oddly enough, the approach that I find more practical, that gets, gets pierces more quickly, and it has for a long, long time, is just the, the following. And it's, it's really simple, and it's kind of obvious, too. And that is, what is actually appearing up there? Because you're looking with your eyeball, with your eyes, with your eyes, visual perception, let's be more precise. With visual perception, you identify colors, and with visual perception, you identify shape. And so we're calling that white square, but of course, that's what's appearing, whether or not you call it white, because we call it beige, we call it cream, we could call it ivory, call it various names, and square, it may be square, but who knows, it might be a little bit longer on one side, in which case it's a rectangle. Um, so the label is coming afterwards, but there's an appearance there. Where exactly, and so there we are, we're, we're looking up at the, at the ceiling and there it is, and we're seeing, let's say, a white square. They probably are square, pretty close, very close approximation. Where is that appearance taking place? Where, where, where is that appearance of that white square located? That which you see with visual perception, because you're not touching it, and you really don't have any access to that apart from visual. You can't hear it, you can't taste it, touch it. It's visual. So where is that which you're actually seeing, the white square, one among many, where is it located? The substrate consciousness is consciousness. Where is it located? In the substrate. Or one can say in, your vi in, the, in the, the visual field, which is a derivative, an expression, a subcategory of the substrate. Yeah, because the visual, the auditory, all of these arise out of the substrate when you wake up and they dissolve back into the substrate when you fall deep asleep. Right? So 
That's an assertion. It, so, it sounded like, and maybe just my ears tricking me, like that was a learned response, hoping to get the right answer. Uh, but the real question is, is it true or not? Is that true or is that just one Buddhist, one more theory out of many, many theories? Is it true or not? Uh, an alternative is, no, not, not, none of this substrate business. Who needs Buddhism? Let's be realistic here. No, th that white square is, the white square that I see is right up there. It's about, what, five meters away from my eyes. Is that where the appearance is? What do you, what do you think? Not what did you learn in the last seven or eight weeks, but the, white, the, the appearance that you do see, and it's white, and let's say it's square, the appearance that you see, where do you think it's located? And it's not to ask you to forget anything you've heard during these seven weeks, but what do you actually think? And that, that means there's no wrong answer, unless you just tell me something you don't think. No question about that. And where is up there? Is that, is that appearance, do you think that appearance of the white square, do you think that appearance really is up there 15 feet or 5 meters or so away from your eyeball? Do you think that's where the appearance actually is located? Yes? That's fine. But as I said, there's no, there's no wrong answer here. I mean, I'm a bit surprised, but that doesn't mean you're wrong. How does the appearance get from there? So it's way up there. That's, that's what I said. That's, I, I, I chose my words very carefully. I hope you are too. Um, the appearance of the white square up there. You're saying it's up there. Um, how did it get from up there to where you are? Because you're way down here. So how did that appearance, did it come quickly or kind of slither down? Did it bump off of Miles' head on, on its way to you? Because something's happened to his head. I'm not quite sure what it was, but definitely something collided with Miles' head. And it could have been white squares for all I know. <laughs> what do you think? And this, this is just for fun. Because philosophy should be fun. Knowing reality should be fun. In, in, in your visual field, yeah? Do you believe that? Yeah. It makes sense, doesn't it? Um, it, it, it really makes sense that it's arising in your visual field. Where, where is your visual field? Oh, yeah, we need that. Thank you. Uh, Thank my you. visual field yep. is... Uh, it's not working. Hello. Oh, hello. <laughs> Your um, visual field, where is that located? In the mental... I don't, don't want to say it's in the brain. Well, say, but what I, what I would like you to say, if you, if you think it's in the brain, say that it's... What I want to have is a real conversation here. This is not a test on how well can you parrot back what I've said. Because then, you know, where's the benefit? So really, I'm genuinely interested, and there's just no wrong answer. All the, the only wrong answer would just kind of just try to deliberately mislead me. And that, that, there's no benefit in that. So where is, your visual, where is the visual field? Where, where is it located? Where, where do you think? Because maybe you don't know, but that's fine. But where do you think? Where is your visual field located? In my brain. <laughs> yeah? What part? In the visual... Visual cortex. cortex, visual cortex back there. Uh, and so the implication would be, there's no, there's, and I'll, I'll tell you a fact, and that is when you're seeing white squares, there's a very strong correlation with that subjective impression, that subjective perception, and some very specific activities within the visual cortex. Very, very specific. I don't know anything about that, but neuroscientists do, and they're very, very smart and have excellent technology. So that, there's, that there is a correlation between the two uh, your, vis your visual perception, your experience of white squares and something very specifically taking place in your visual cortex. 
which consists of nothing other than chemicals and electricity. I think you'll have a hard time finding any neuroscientist who's not drunk, uh, and usually they're not drunk, uh, who would disagree with that, that in your brain there's chemicals and electricity, and that's all that's really there. And of course, the complex configurations, the interactions, of course, of course, of course. And they're immensely complex. There's no question about that. Um, so that there's a correlation that, that's indisputable by anybody who takes neuroscience seriously, and I, I definitely do. Um, but if two things are correlated, does that imply that one needs to be located where the other one is? No? That why do you think, then, that the, the visual impressions themselves, which appear to be out there, are actually inside your head? Why, why, why do you think that? I mean, it's, it's, it's said a lot, but you don't believe things just because other people say them, do you? I don't know, just because it comes through my eyes. What comes, what, what, that's very good, though. What comes through your eyes? Um, what comes through your eyes? The photons? The photons don't light. come through no. the eyes, but they certainly do strike <laughs> the retina, and then they catalyze something. The mm -hmm. actual cooperative conditions, they catalyze then a very, very complex sequence of electrochemical events that start with the retina and culminate in the visual cortex. That's true. Um, and what does that have to do with the price of tomatoes? Or, to be more specific, what, is that, what does that have to do with the location of the visual impression of the, of the white squares? Because that's true. But the photons are not white. Your retina is not white. No part of your visual cortex turns white. So why do you think there's anything white in there, let alone squares? Because none of the neurons are squares. I don't think their configurations are squares. Like, the, you know, neurons doing a square dance. <laughs> I don't think so. Do-si-do, your partner. It's a triangle time. It's a do-do-do. Now we can turn into a square in a circle. Beep, beep, doodle, doodle. I don't think so. I don't think you're having all these square dances of the, of the neurons inside your brain. I don't think so. So, so do, you, do you think they're actually located in there, even though no, there's no evidence that nobody's, no neuroscientist has ever seen white squares in, in, inside anybody's visual cortex? No, I don't think there's an actual white square in my brain, but... I just think it makes me. <laughs> <laughs> if there were, I think you would need surgery very quickly. Get that white square out of there. It could be blocking some stuff. So, so then where is, the, where is the appearance of the white square? In my consciousness. In your consciousness. But you're not conscious of it? I am conscious of it. So are you conscious of something that's other than your consciousness? Or are you simply consciousness of something inside your consciousness? seems like it's something other because it's... It certainly does. It doesn't look like you're looking at your consciousness up there. Yeah. It looks like white squares. So where do you think it's located? I think it is it, it, located... The, the appearance of the white square. The, the, the roof is up there. There's no question about that. Yeah. Nobody's questioning that. Is it made of molecules? Will it be there when we all leave? If we all die, would it still be there? Yes, 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 yes. That's not the question. The question is the appearance of the white squares up there. Um, where are they located? The appearance is located in my substrate. It's either the substrate or the substrate consciousness. I get them mixed up. But yeah, it's, it's, uh, there's no, and now we're using Buddhist terminology, so it looks like you're kind of taking that seriously. Um, substrate consciousness is not, has no it has, doesn't have dimension. Substrate consciousness... It's just, it's cognizant, it's, it's just uh, denuded, that is stripped down to the bare essentials. 
denuded cognizance and luminosity. And it has a quality of bliss and it's quiet. So therefore, blissful, luminous, non-conceptual. But it's stripped down. It's not, it's not male, female, human, non-human, old, young, African, Asian, or anything like that. It's stripped down to the nucleus. Stem consciousness is what I call it. Yeah. Um, but that means it doesn't have any dimensions. It's not like two feet across. Or it doesn't have the... If anybody can find any shape to it, three-dimensional, flat, or anything else, then I'd like to know about it. But um, the words themselves suggest not. Cognizance, luminosity, bliss, uh, non-conceptuality, none of those give any suggestion of square or even a location for square. Right? But substrate, the substrate, let's just imagine you've achieved shamatha. I hope you do. I think it would be quite wonderful. So then, you, then everything I'm talking about, you know exactly what the reference are. Just like if I say dark chocolate, it's not a mystery to you. Taste of dark chocolate, milk chocolate, white chocolate, I'm sure you know. So it's just bum, bum, click, 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 I know what you mean. Bang. So the words are going right to your experience. So ha- if you achieve shamatha, then these words will go right to your experience. And that is when you're resting in shamatha, your, wa- your, your senses are withdrawn, and you're s- resting there luminously, blissfully, non-conceptually, what appears to your awareness? Hans Peter, what appears to your awareness when you're resting in the substrate consciousness? Yeah, what's, what, what's there? I mean, your consciousness has been stripped down to substrate consciousness, what are you aware of? What appears to you? What's, what's happening, dude? What arises to? Now's a good time to ask. Just a substrate. Exactly right. Just a substrate. And that's why it's called substrate consciousness. That's why I like breaking it down, not calling it foundation consciousness or storehouse consciousness. Um, that's why I like substrate. Gun Ji. Gun means all. Ji means basis. It's the basis for the manifestation of all appearances. It's the ground of the manifestation of all appearances within samsara. So substrate, I think, is pretty good. It's not, it's, I don't know if it's the best. It's just the best one I've been able to come up with thus far. But why I like breaking it down like that, and I found this is really the genius of the Dzogchen tradition, is that they do break into two pieces. They speak of the gunji, the, or the alaya, and the, subs- and the alaya vijnana, and they don't just say, okay, one thing. right? Two. And so the alaya vijnana is the vijnana of the alaya, the consciousness of the alaya, when you've, you've stripped down to the nucleus. So, once you've achieved shamatha, and your mind for the time being has been reduced to substrate consciousness, all that, you're appearing, all that you're experiencing immediately, when you're just resting there, is this vacuity. That's vacuity, and the vacuity is illuminated by your substrate consciousness. Which is to say, if you have any thought that arises, it will be illuminated by your awareness. I, again, when I, when I speak of this, I think of when I, when I was a kid, I had an, a, an aquarium, a fish aquarium. Um, very ordinary one, but I enjoyed it. And what I really enjoyed was keeping it very clean. And I had some beautiful fish, blue tetras, zebra fish, angel fish, uh, and they're very beautiful, uh, lovely colors and so forth. But I'd like to, I'd love to t- turn on the light in the aquarium and then turn the rest of the, and have the rest of the room dark, black, and then just see this luminous space with these, this, these beautiful fish like the blue tetras, just in, in like electric blue, you know? and zebrafish, and, oh, a nice variety. So the point there is that any fish that is seen within that luminous three-dimensional space is brightly illuminated by the light of the aquarium. And likewise, if a little bubble, and this would hap- happen occasionally, a little bubble comes up from the sand on the bottom, it's brightly illuminated by the light for the aquarium. If there's a little 
a little bit of fi little tiny fish turd, a little tiny fish turd. They just kind of float. And if, if they're floating, and one, one, one little fish poops, they go, okay. The little fish turd is illuminated by the same thing. And so whatever appears in that space, it's all illuminated by one source. And that's the aquarium light. So there we are. That is a close analogy. And that this is the space, this is the aquarium of your, of your alaya. It's the aquarium of, of, of your alaya. And little thoughts, even when you're resting in shamatha, little thoughts will bubble up, little isolated, non-associated thoughts will bubble up without causing any excitation or disturbance. They'll just come bubble up. Or if you wish to direct your attention, let's say to your past, earlier in this lifetime, past lifetimes and so forth, images will appear. They'll be like the fish that come up. They're all illuminated by your awareness, the light of your awareness. So the, uh, the aquarium has a three-dimensionality to it. Fish over here, fish back there, so I don't need to elaborate. And likewise, the alaya is three-dimensional. Three-dimensional. So that's when your, your, your senses have completely imploded into, sense perceptions have imploded into the substrate consciousness, and all the sensory fields, the visual, auditory, and so forth, have all imploded into alaya. Alaya. But then when you, somebody calls out, Tea's on. Maybe you'll also cue your attendant. Disturb me only when you've made my tea. They call out, tea's on, and Steph comes out of samadhi, and then suddenly, Songaba says, he said, when you're coming, when you've been resting in shamatha, and then you come out, he said, it's like suddenly, out of nowhere, becoming, I'll do, try to do visual, like, whoosh, oh, I'm embodied. Fancy that. It's like just suddenly your body appearing out of space. And I can move it. Wow, all empty. Appearances, tactile, auditory. Oh, like that. So the somatic field emerges from the alaya, and the visual emerges from the alaya. The auditory arises from the alaya. And then you go off and get, have some tea which smells good, and then you taste it and you smell it. The taste and the smells all emerging from the alaya, but now differentiated into these five sensory domains, and your mental domain is still there, and you're thinking, when's he going to bring the tea? Now that he's said tea's on, where's my tea? And did he make it properly? And so forth and so on. So all of this is a response, though, to your question. It's a good one. That's why I've, I've lingered on it. Oh, it's late. Um, but it's good to just have something free-flowing. Free and also, in the future also, I hope you'll respond like Steph. Say what you actually think, and not simply trying to get a right answer. Because right, right answers we tend to forget. Because they're just in some book someplace anyway. Whereas what you really think, if that evolves, evolves not just by trying to be indoctrinated or being obedient, but by investigating more and more closely, that stays. And that actually starts to shift your view of reality. So I'm going to sum up here. And I'll just talk for a little while. Mon monologue. And that is when I'm looking up there, I'm seeing, I'm seeing shapes and colors. And those shapes and colors do not exist out there. They appear to out there. And that's why they're called illusory. They appear to be, those shapes and colors appear to be really up there. Definitely, no question. They seem to be up there, and I seem to be simply down here observing an appearances way up there, five meters away from my eyeballs. That's how it appears, and it's not true. Any more than when I look into a mirror, and I'm standing, let's say, two meters in front of a mirror, and I'm looking at my own reflection. I'm looking at a spitting image, and I often do spit, a spitting image of myself four meters away. Because, of course, the, the appearance of me is not on the surface of the mirror, Right? The surf, if I'm standing two meters in front of the mirror, the reflection of me is two meters behind the mirror. And it looks just like me. 
and it definitely appears to be, and I could even get out a camera lens as I'm focusing my camera lens on the mirror and say, okay, when is the reflection of me going to come into focus? And the camera lens will tell you four meters. That's a mechanical instrument. They just told me four meters away, there's an image that just came into focus. That must be mean that's where the image is. Because that's what the camera lens said. Whether I'm focusing on you four meters away or focusing on the reflection of me four meters away, the camera lens says exactly the same thing. You're now in focus. That's where the image is. Except when I'm looking into a mirror and I'm looking at an image of me four meters away, there is nothing there at all. At all. But it's crystal clear. And it's causally interrelated with me. How can that be? There's nothing there. But I go, and it does the same thing back back to me. You know? And I go, <laughs> and he tries to pick me up. It's really, <laughs> how can that be? There's causal efficacy here. I'm influencing that appearance. But it's not there. It's not there four meters away. It's not there on the surface of the mirror. There is no image of me inside my brain. Nobody's ever done an, uh, an fMRI and say, oh, look, Alan's in there. <laughs> there are no images inside the brain at all. Zero. Chemicals and electricity. They should really have that as a mantra. In the brain, is chemicals and electricity. Complex, yes. Chemical electricity. That's it. Oh, and by the way, in the whole of the universe, in every case, without exception, the only emergent properties of physical phenomena are themselves physical and therefore measurable. Therefore, there's no reason to believe the brain is an exception. Therefore, images, thoughts, and so forth are not emergent properties of the brain because that would make them supernatural. And the whole of nature says, not true. Why do we never see that in print? That was kind of simple reasoning. But, you know, one sheep goes, bah, and the whole herd of sheep go, bah, you must be right, you bud first. You know, so there we are. So as with the reflection of me four, four meters in front of me, so with the appearance of the tiles five meters up there, there's nothing up there that's white. And that's the basis of designation. That's my basic designation. Where, where's the tile? Right up there. And what am, I, what am I actually designating upon? The appearance of white and the square. That's it. That's it. That's what I'm actually seeing, is appearance. But the appearance isn't there. The basis of designation isn't there, let alone the tile that I'm imputing upon the appearance. And therefore, the visual appearance itself is empty. It appears to be there, and it's not. And it's not out there, and it's not in between. It's not in the photons, it's not in the retina, and there's no evidence it's back there in the visual cortex either. Therefore, it's not anywhere. The visual appearance isn't anywhere. Because when you say, oh, it's in my substrate, yeah, where's that? Nowhere. And that's the basis of the designation of square tile. How real and objective can white square tile be when the basis of designation for it doesn't really exist anywhere at all? Okay, is that a start? Yeah. This is not designed to draw irreversible conclusions. 
it is designed to raise deep questions that rattle our cage. So you're saying the appearance you're saying the appearance isn't really there, but the actual physical thing is there. It's just we're talking about the appearances. And now think this would take us a long time. It's we're ten minutes into dinner, um, dinner time. That would be the first conclusion, and it's false. It's, it would be the first conclusion that many neuroscientists would accept, and physicists would accept, that the appearance, okay, it's not really anywhere, but it's an illusion after all, so let's not worry about it. What's really there are the molecules. That would, that would be the first place to go. And that would leave your worldview almost untouched. But then we ask, all right, molecules. Molecules are also designated on the basis of appearances. Ask any elementary particle physicist. Whatever measurement, you're always getting measurements on the basis of the measurements, which physicists call information. On the basis of information, which is not made out of molecules. On the basis of appearances, which are not made out of molecules. Physicists conceive of molecules and superimpose molecules on appearances but the appearances aren't really there. Therefore, the basis of designation of molecules exists nowhere. Therefore, the molecules they designate upon the basis of them also has no basis in reality. Independent of our perception, but not independent of our conceptions. So there are no... And I have to end on this because dinner's not getting cold. But, but this is not designed to terminate the conversation or ask you to stop thinking because now I have spoken. That'd be ridiculous. That so if it was raining, would we be getting wet through that hole? I think you know the answer to that. <laughs> so I'm not going to answer a rhetorical question. <coughs> Noah, if you realized emptiness, you never need an umbrella again. <laughs> now, there's a reason, especially in England. I haven't needled the English people much, but man, oh man, think how valuable it would be if you would never needed an umbrella again. If you could just re meditate on emptiness and stay dry, that would, be, that would be really nice. And of course, the clouds have no inherent existence either. So if you could realize the lack of inherent nature of clouds and have England have a few nice days per year, <laughs> that would definitely be worth a lot of vipassana practice. But you'd have to sustain it with jamata, otherwise there'd be a little break and then sit, you know, okay, we'll just come right in again. So this needs further investigation. But the point here is that, yes, you would still get wet. Yes, they're still made of molecules. But it comes back, and this, this is why it might be helpful to go back and just touch with physics a little bit. Not that that's the final word, but there's an awful lot of intelligence there. It's mainstream by some of the most brilliant physicists, suggesting provocative ideas that whatever we're measuring as a physicist or gazing up with human eyes at you know, the, the tiles on the ceiling, whatever we're measuring, what appears is what's appearing to our system of measurement. We're never getting what's already out there independent of our measurement. Right? So molecules, yes, everything you've learned about molecules from elementary school, middle school, secondary school, and on, onwards. Um, I suspect it was a good education. There's a lot of very good knowledge in physics. But all of that knowledge, which from a the perspective of metaphysical realism, is to describe and represent what's absolutely out there from a God's eye perspective what's absolutely there in the objective world. Uh, some of the most brilliant physicists alive and over the last century have suggested, as Anton Seiner himself said, 
when we try to test the validity of our theories, we cannot rub them against objective reality as it is in itself because we never have any access to it, ever. All we have access to is the information, the appearances that we get from our measurement systems. But those are always arising relative to the measurement system. We don't have a God's eye view. And no scientist does. Right? And so therefore, yes, everything we think about molecules, that they're out there when we're not looking, yes, I agree. Yes, I agree. The molecules as we understand them, because bear in mind, we don't have God's notion of molecules. We have human beings' notion of molecules in the 21st century. Everything we know about molecules is based upon measurements that human beings have made. And Werner Heisenberg, again, said, what we observe is not nature in itself, but nature as exposed to our systems of measurement. Right? So everything we know about molecules is based upon measurements. The measurements and the information from them are not made out of molecules. And so everything we know about molecules, and I would say there's a lot of valid knowledge about molecules, is all true relative to those systems of measurement and the conceptual formulations that make sense of that information or those measurements. And so molecules as we conceive of them do not exist independently of our systems of measurement and our conceptual framework. There's no reason to believe they do. They do exist, but exist relative to the system of measurement and the conceptual frameworks that make sense of them. So they're there when we're not looking, but they do not exist inherently there all by themselves, independent of all systems of measurement and conceptual framework. They exist relative to them. Just like white isn't really out there, it exists relative to visual perception. Sounds, as we hear them, are not out there. They, they arise relative to auditory consciousness. Everything we think exists out there that appears to, as usual, appears to us as existing absolutely out there. Galaxies, stars, planets, cosmic dust, and so forth, that seems to be totally out there. That's an illusion, just like white being up there is an illusion. It seems to be out there absolutely. And that's because we reify everything we perceive and we reify everything we conceive. And the world, the physical world, as it exists in and of itself, is something we've conceived and then reified. Does it exist in terms of best approximation? Yeah, it's based on really good science. Does it exist absolutely independent of all of science? If it does, there's no way we'd know it. Because we can never take our theories and then see how they correspond to absolute objective reality independent of all systems of measurement. So it's always relative. The ramifications, the, the ripple effect of that uh, absolutely phenomenal. Because it suggests on all levels we are continually co-creating as observer participants the reality we're experiencing. Whether it's in a personal relationship, friends, as you and I are, I'm arising to you, you're arising to me. But I never see you as you are in and of yourself and nor do you. And nor does anybody else. Because when we look for you in and of yourself, nowhere to be found. We look for the molecule in and of itself, independent of all systems of measurement. Nowhere to be found. Look for white. Nowhere to be found. Not out there, in between, or inside the brain. Nowhere to be found. They're all empty. But then all arising in this process of mutual interdependent origination, arising relative to systems of measurement. But of course, there is no system of measurement unless it measures something. So even the system of measurement isn't inherently existent. Because you can't say this... This piece, is the paper, this piece of paper is a system of measurement. Until you say, yes, I can. 
It's measuring the density of the cell phone. And it is. That's my system of measurement right now. It's a wadded up piece of paper, and I can tell it's hard. There's a lot of earth element there. This is now a system of measurement, but not until it measures something. Right? So no intrinsically existent system of measurement, no intrinsically existent information or appearances, and no intrinsically existent objects of any kind, whether molecules, white squares, or anything else. Thank you. Enjoy your non-inherently existent <laughs> dinner. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>